0: Welcome to On The Rise, a podcast about female college tennis players on the way up. On The Rise serves compelling stories and unique voices in women's college tennis. This is your host, Perry Shinin. In this episode of On The Rise, I will be speaking with Arizona alum Dana Mathewson, who became the first American to win a wheelchair Grand Slam this past summer. Led by head coach Brian Barton, Dana competed for the Wildcats before breaking into the top 10 in the world in both singles and doubles. Dana is currently the highest ranked American wheelchair tennis player. Welcome to another episode of On The Rise Podcast. I'm joined today by Dana Mathewson from Arizona Women's Tennis. Dana, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I want to start off talking about
1: your time in Arizona. Before I was in Arizona, wheelchair tennis in the collegiate space Was definitely there, but it doesn't have as large of a presence as it does now. So when I first heard that I could maybe get a scholarship to a D1 school to play sports, I was like, really? Like that exists for adaptive sports? So that alone, I was really amazed at. I was kind of choosing in between both Arizona and Illinois, but I fell in love with the Arizona campus and then being on a team anytime that I get to have that, because in tennis, it's so rare, right? That you get to have a team feel. I loved it. I was definitely thrown into it with having like the two-a-day practices and the early morning wake-ups and the gym requirements and all that stuff that I never had in high school, but I loved it.
0: Did you know that tennis was going to be a
1: full-time gig for you? Collegiate tennis for the wheelchair space is a little bit different in that because there aren't a bunch of schools that have a strong wheelchair program we don't only compete in the collegiate space you represent your school and you do compete at like college nationals and things like that but you actually compete on the itf circuit so i was able to continue my personal career by also representing arizona i knew that rio was coming up and then i saw my ranking was kind of going up and i was like i wonder if i could qualify for rio And so many people were like, there's no way you're going to qualify in one year. Like your ranking is like in the, I don't even know what it was, but it started from nothing. Right. And I remember hearing that and I was like, challenge accepted. And I honestly, I didn't think that I would be granted a leave of absence from my grad program because it was really competitive. I was shocked that my mom supported it because my mom was always like school is your job ever since I was little, when she said yes I was like wow okay I guess I better ask my professors and they all said yes they were like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for you I'm lucky I guess that it wasn't once in a lifetime but they were so supportive of me and so yeah got the leave of absence and then started touring and qualified for Rio by the skin of my teeth and then kept
0: playing and you've played two Paralympic games since then what does it mean to you to represent this country
1: Oh, it's huge. I'm in a lucky position that I get to represent Team USA year in and year out because I keep qualifying for the team. And so I try to remember how big of a deal that is, because I still remember when I was younger and I would see the people on Team USA and want to be on that team. And the feeling of going out onto a court, knowing that you have the flag on your shirt or USA on your back,
0: that's something that never gets old. You are the top ranked American wheelchair tennis player. And that's just a huge accomplishment as it is. But I also want to talk about the work that you're doing off the court to really promote wheelchair tennis and grow the sport.
1: You know, after my injury when I was 10, my sense of self was extremely rocked. My independence was taken away. My body all of a sudden didn't work the way that I wanted it to. And sports really helped me figure out who I was again. So I'm eternally grateful to the sport. And I think that it's a little different in the adaptive community side. Like yes, sports has a huge impact on an able-bodied child, but the impact that it can have on a child with a disability is like exponentially more in my experience. And so for me to be able to either coach at camps or do things like this with you that other people will listen to, and maybe someone listens to this and they're like, wow, I didn't know wheelchair tennis existed. I'm going to find a place to take my daughter or son or my brother or sister or whatever. That's huge with The standing that I have in the sporting world, I think that it's part of my job to help give back. It's really important that you remember where you came from. And for me, where I came from was a little kid that was really lost and didn't know a whole lot about what her new life was like. And if you can help change someone's life that way, you know, like what an honor that is.
0: I've heard you say that you were screaming and crying on the way to practice every day as a kid. (laughs) What was that like to have that change of mind or was it really your mom's doing as well? She's a
1: big part of it. I had never heard of adaptive sports before my injury. I think our country is so big that even though people with disabilities make up, I think it's like 15% of the whole world's population, which is a big number, Our country is so big and we're so spread out that there's no guarantee that you're going to meet someone like me on a daily basis. So I'd never run into someone with a disability that wasn't someone's grandparent or who didn't also have a mental disability. So for me, when I heard about wheelchair sports, I was like, there's no way I fit in there. How is that going to be like the sports that I remember? Because I grew up playing soccer. I was a really active kid and I really loved sports. So it's kind of like, well, that's not for me. I don't belong there. I'm better than that, which was so far from the truth. But I didn't know that at the time. My mom, thankful for her because she was like, no, you're going. You have no idea what this is like. This is going to be good for you. She could have easily been like, oh, my daughter's really been through it. She doesn't want to go. I'm not going to make her go. And then I would have never, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. But yeah, I got to those sports camps. And I remember seeing all these other kids that use wheelchairs just like me. And none of them had mental disabilities. None of them were old grandparents. They just happened to be moving around in wheelchairs as opposed to running around on their feet. And that was so eye-opening. If you think back to when you were a teenager, all you want to do is fit in. I wanted to seamlessly fit in. I didn't want to stick out, but I so obviously stick out in my chair. So the community feeling that I felt when I immediately saw those other kids like me at these sporting camps was huge I think the first sport that I tried was wheelchair rugby it's insane (laughs) like my first ever adaptive chair was a rugby chair it was this little green thing and I used to get thrown out of it all the time like wheelchair rugby is violent but I had the best time because so many times when someone has a disability you're treated like you're a, a fragile piece of glass And I was just thrown into this sport where people don't care. And they're just like smashing you. You're falling on the ground. And that was amazing. So then basketball was the next sport. And then tennis was the third one, I think. And for whatever reason, tennis was the one that kind of
0: stuck with me. When did you realize that you were not just good at tennis, but you were going to be elite at the sport? (laughs) beautifully. I was never pushed that
1: hard into tennis. I was able to just go and play it after school and have fun because at that time in my life, I just needed an outlet and that's what it got to be. But I think once I started playing tournaments, I had to play against boys and that was great. (laughs) So I won my first ever tournament in Irvine, California. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I think it was a lot of me enjoying the sport, me having very level of success at tournaments as opposed to one moment where I had one big win and it was like, this is it, I'm going pro. The Team USA coaches always supported me through my career. And then different experiences that I had on tour or playing for the junior team for Team USA and then on the women's team and things like that kind of snowballed into me wanting to make this what I do for a living.
0: You've been so successful in both singles and doubles. I mean, reaching a career high of number six when you were 10 in the world in singles. Talk to me about this most recent accomplishment, really making history on the court, winning Wimbledon, being the first American to win a Wimbledon title. What did it feel like to lift that trophy?
1: Honestly, it was surreal. We played against a team that's got multiple calendar slams, and I was partnering with Yui, who also has an incredible slam career. So I was just like, please Dana, like, please just play a good match, because I knew I was going to get picked on. Out of the four of those people... On paper, I'm the weakest person on that court, right? So I knew that I needed to show up and show out for Yui. And I was really pleasantly surprised with what we did. I remember coming out there and seeing the score because I think that first set we got either 6-1 or 6-love or something really dominant. Me and Yui were both like, oh my gosh, we could win this thing. And so it was really cool having that energy from both of us. We just played great. I think she and I really complemented each other's game styles. I had no idea during that match that if I won it, I would be the first American wheelchair player to win a slam. I didn't know that at all, which is probably good. That
0: moment, I'll remember forever. Your fan base is really growing by the minute now. Wilson just released yesterday the campaign with you on Instagram, which I love. It's so cool. Talk to me about these sponsorships because you have Wilson, you have Adidas on your team. How did those come to be? I decided
1: when I moved here that I would really make a go at tennis. And although the wheelchair tennis space is getting more and more professionalized, we still don't make the same money that an able-bodied player does. Even though we play at the same events and everything, the cash prize just isn't really there unless you're playing at a slam. And even then, a winner of our slam makes probably the same amount that a first-round loser makes, to put it in perspective. So... I knew that if I wanted to keep playing tennis, I need to make some money. So I decided to hire an agent. Her name's Ish Tanyeri. I found her on Instagram actually. And she only works with Paralympians. And I was like, what do I have to lose? I'm gonna message her. And it was like the best decision I ever made. What I'm really excited about more than anything is that I'm helping be a catalyst for change in terms of how athletes are marketed. Like the fact that I was a hero in the Wilson campaign is huge. And that'll hopefully happen forever. But the fact that it's not normal yet, and I get to kind of start helping make it normal is really exciting for me. And it's so cool to see all these different brands embracing athletes like myself and realizing that we are athletes to be showcased as athletes. That's what I'm most excited about. Because so many times you see athletes like myself that are portrayed as just inspirations and like good for them for getting out of bed. No one knows about my injury in that Wilson campaign. They know that I use a wheelchair, but that's it. It's not about that whole story of overcoming adversity. It's just, this is an athlete, look at her as an athlete. And that's so important, I think, for the Paralympic movement, for adaptive athletes everywhere. And so the fact that I get to be part of that change is like super important to me.
0: Where do you see the evolution of how Paralympic athletes are viewed? Because I feel like in a lot of ways, it's changing, but it still has a long way to go.
1: I would say that we're the most physically accessible country. But in terms of how people like me or people with disabilities are perceived, we are one of the worst. The reason why I have that opinion is that with tennis, I'm able to travel the world and be immersed in different cultures and see how Wheelchair tennis specifically is viewed and I've also lived overseas, I lived in London and London for example, they hosted a Paralympic Games in 2012, but the way that they view people with disabilities is so different from here. For example, I was just watching um, the Great British Bake Off, there was a person on that show with a disability. Not once did they highlight that person's disability, they filmed that person the same way that they would film you. There was no like cut to their inspirational story or their car accident or nothing like that, which seems so small, but it's huge because it just showcases us as people. And when people see someone with a disability portrayed like that on a screen, then they treat you more normal when they see you in public. It's like this domino kind of effect. Paralympians are seen on their TV commercials. They're seen on billboards. Or if people saw me with my tennis stuff, they immediately asked like, oh, have you ever played at Wimbledon? If you're over here, no one's exposed to it. So I can't tell you how many times within a year I'm asked if I'm a Special Olympian, which not to knock the Special Olympics, but that is a super different thing than the Paralympic Games because that's for people with mental disabilities. I do not belong in that category. People don't really understand that adaptive sports exist. They don't understand that it's professionalized. They don't understand that we play at Grand Slams. They don't understand what the Paralympics is for one. So we have a very long way to go But I'm really hopeful that when the U.S. hosts the games in L.A. in 2028, that that'll be a big catalyst for change because it looks like historically, whenever a country has hosted a games, that is where there's been a big cultural shift and recognition of athletes with disabilities. And so I'm really crossing my fingers that that happens.
0: And so you are 31 years old. What is the next step? Is the next step The next Paralympic Games in LA? No.
1: (laughs) So I'm going to play through the next Paralympics in Paris in 2024. But in 2028, I think that as much as I love tennis, I would rather be in my next chapter of life at that time. That's not to say that I don't want to be involved with Team USA. I would love to commentate. But 2028, I'll be close to 40 years old, you know, and I want to have a family I'm engaged, so I'm getting married next year. And I think that I want to start that next chapter after Paris.
0: Was it hard to keep a relationship while you were traveling the world as a pro?
1: (laughs) Well, yes and no. I'm very lucky that my fiance is super understanding. It's rare that you find someone who's really okay with you being gone like 30 weeks out of the year and in different time zones. And maybe I can talk to you. Maybe I can't talk to you. He's never made me feel bad about any of that. He's always been like my biggest cheerleader. It does help that he has an equally insane schedule. He's in medical school. When you have one person in a relationship that's super busy and the other person's not, then that person is always waiting on the other person. And I think you can have some resentment build up. But when we're both equally busy, it helps. How did you meet? Oh my gosh, it's the most epic story. How much time do you have? (laughs) I have all day. So it was when I moved here to Orlando and I had lived there for a few months when I went to open up the trunk of my car to go to a workout and there was a frog. I hate frogs, they creep me out. So I was like, what am I gonna do? I initially had to ask this random Amazon guy if he could help me get the frog out of my car. He tries to like swish it off with one of his packages and the frog went into my car in between that black insulation and the metal and like went into the wall of my car. The next day... I go to my car and the same exact thing happens again. I open up my trunk and it was in the same exact spot that it was the day before, to the point where I was thinking I was living in some freaky Friday type of weird movie situation. And I saw Tristan, my fiance like running and I'd never met him before. And he was like across the parking lot. And I literally yelled, I was like, excuse me, can you please help me? And I always joke, he probably saw my wheelchair and was like, oh, she needs help getting something. And then to his surprise, I asked him like, can you get this frog out of my car? (laughs) Yeah, so he got the frog out of my car. I think he was late to something. I was like flustered. I didn't even introduce myself. He didn't introduce himself. But the next day I went to my car and there was a note taped to my window that had a frog drawn on it. And it said like, oh, I hope your day got better after everything that happened. If you need anything, I live in apartment 309, but he just signed it like your friendly neighborhood frog wrangler. So I decided that I would make him cookies and then put a note that said, like, if you want me to know your real name, you should text me. I waited till the dead of night when I wouldn't see him and I dropped it on his doorstep and I left.
0: And then he texted me the next day, and then that's how we met. That is perhaps the most unbelievable story I've ever heard. And so what's next for you? You're one of the few who are traveling as a professional tennis player, and you not only have your undergraduate, but you also have your master's. You have a whole life ahead of you to be this pediatric audiologist <laughs> that you were talking about. So what I'm really curious about is that transition. I talked to a lot of women on this podcast about the transition from tennis to the world beyond but it seems like you already have that set in a lot of ways.
1: I do and I don't, so I'm still in school now. I'm getting my clinical doctor in it, but it's all online because I've already done my clinical hours and I've done my dissertations and things. So I am still studying towards that audiology degree, but I realized that I'm actually very intrigued by the corporate side of tennis. And I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of really great people in that space and they've offered to take me under their wing which i'm so appreciative of and so although i haven't completely ruled out audiology i actually think that i would love to put my skill set towards growing tennis and not necessarily the wheelchair side although i will forever dabble in that side in terms of coaching at camps if i'm needed helping with junior outreach maybe i can be a coach at a world team cup which is our version of you know davis cup but I think that I would love to work just on the professional side in terms of able body tennis, wheelchair tennis. And I'm still kind of figuring out what avenue I'd like to pursue. But I think my experiences, the people that I've met, and my skill set really could shine in the corporate side of tennis. I see the opportunity for growth and change in that workspace, and that really intrigues me. So stay tuned to see what I end up doing when I retire. <laughs>
0: And to take a moment to talk about women's tennis, being both a wheelchair athlete and a female tennis player, do you think that's almost double the hills to climb?
1: Yeah, for sure. I haven't experienced as much obvious speed bumps in the road or things as a woman. And that's just because I probably primarily notice the ones that are more disability related in terms of being treated the same or being recognized the same, because those are the biggest hurdles. But yeah, definitely, I think there's always going to be an uphill battle in terms of proving yourself as an elite athlete, as a female, because we can't hit the ball as hard. We can't run maybe quite as fast. We're not playing five sets. We're playing three. So there's always going to be that kind of thing in the back of people's heads, like, oh, men are better athletes than women. And that's definitely not true. Maybe you can build muscle mass in ways that we can't. But what you're doing with your body is no better than what I'm doing with mine. Like who's to say that if I had your body, I wouldn't be better than you. The wheelchair side is definitely the one that I notice a lot more inequity pay for one. Like, yes, we have less players, but we are still competing at a very high level. For instance, even with grand slams, they are increasing prize money slowly and the recognition is getting better, but pay us maybe the same amount that you're paying in Ablebody per round. So us losing first round, we should make the same amount of money that they're losing first round. We don't have as many people in the draw. So do I think we need a million dollars? No, but say we play four or five rounds, have the winner make the same that a fifth round winner makes, which is six figures as opposed to five. So I think there's a lot of growth in that space, but that is part of what makes this kind of journey interesting As a stubborn type of person that I am, I wouldn't really want it any other way, which is probably kind of a weird thing to say, but I value that ability to fight for my rights, to fight for people that are like me, whether they be women, whether they be disabled athletes or both. That's something that I'm always going to be passionate about. My name is Dana Matheson and I'm On The Rise.
0: This has been an episode of On The Rise, a tennis channel podcast in partnership with Behind the Racket and produced by Molly Schulson. Join us next time to continue our conversation about women's college tennis. This is Perry Shinen. On The Rise.